Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hi everybody, I'm Ray Otis, and it's time for another Plundergrounds. Today we are talking about the micro game from 1981 by TSR, Revolt on Antares. This was a special request from Frosthoth of the Thought Eater podcast, and one that I am happy to indulge him on. It took me a while to find this game in my collection. It's such a small game that it got tucked in, bet- in between other micro games and zines that I have. So I had to search twice. Even though I knew what area it was in, it, it, I still couldn't find it. Um, this is, by the way, my theory of marriage. <laughs> I'm going to go off on a tangent or window out, as I like to say. Uh, I'm bad at looking for things. And in my first year or so of marriage, um, I would be looking for something. Let's Let's say it's the potato peeler. And I would pull open the drawer in the kitchen where all that stuff is kept. And I'd look, and the potato peeler wasn't there. And so I would close the door and shout into the other room uh, for my wife and say, hey, where's the potato peeler? And she'd say, it's in that drawer. And I'd say, no, it isn't. And then she'd say, look again. Uh, And I'd, you know, look again. Well, fast forward another five to ten years. uh, And uh, now my routine would be that I'd open that drawer looking for the potato peeler. I'd see that it wasn't in there. I'd shut the drawer. I'd think about yelling uh, over to my wife to say, where's the potato peeler? And then I'd think twice, and I'd pull open the drawer again, and I'd look through it again. Now, the potato peeler's still not there, but I double-checked, right? So then I'd shout into my wife, where's the potato peeler? And she'd say, it's there in that kitchen drawer. And I'd say, no, it isn't. And then she would come in and find it for me there in the drawer, (laughs) as she did the time before, um, you know, 10 years ago. All right, fast forward another 10 years. I've been married 26 years now. Uh, Now, here's how it works for me. I open that kitchen drawer, and I'm looking for the potato peeler, and it's not there. And I shut the drawer. I don't even think about yelling for my wife, right? Not yet. I pull open the drawer again and look for the potato peeler. It's still not there, okay? But this time, when I look for the potato peeler, I start all over again. So this is the third time I'm looking, you know, to be fair, I probably, I don't really shut and open the drawer each time, but it takes me three times of looking. So now instead of looking for the potato peeler, I stop looking for anything in particular. And I just go from one corner of the drawer to the other. And I start naming off the things in the drawer to myself, right? Oh, there's the ice cream scoop. There's the apple slicer. There's the potato peeler. What? Oh, there's the potato peeler. And the reason I couldn't see it before was that I thought the potato peeler had a white handle, and it turns out it has a red handle or something like that. I was not looking for it in the right way. Well, so that's um, you know a lesson that I've learned. My wife has finally trained me how to look for things uh, instead of assuming I know what they look like and and not really looking for them or pretending to look for them and then getting aggravated when I can't find them or they're not placed where I think they should be or they what I'm really aggravated by is that they don't look like I think they should look. <laughs> As an artist, I should have learned this lesson a long time ago, and I think I did in art terms, but uh, somehow um, 
marriage sometimes makes you lazy and you, you rely on your spouse for things instead of doing it yourself. And, um, it was a good lesson for me, I guess. So where were we at? Uh, we were going to talk about revolt on Antares and I finally did find it in my collection. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video where, um, a person opens up the revolt on, on Antares box, um, and, uh, goes through the contents because I think the visuals are strong and you really should see it. But I, I'll, in the meantime, I'll describe what I'm looking at here. Um, so I've got a little pamphlet sized set of rules in my hand. It is, um, oh, probably six inches tall by maybe four inches wide, something like that, four and a half inches wide. Um, it's got the TSR logo with the old man face on the front. It says copyright 1980. Um, I thought this came out in 81. I'm pretty sure it did because actually um, at the bottom corner of the art uh, on the cover, it says D81, uh, and that's Jeff D. So I don't know how the cover art was done uh, before the game was published. <laughs> I would assume that the game was published then in 81. Uh, it says for two to four players ages 12 and up, a science fiction mini game, and then, of course, boldly across the top, Revolt on Antares. The cover image is in full color. It's a dude. Um, he looks a little bit like um, Bruce Jenner from the days when he was on the Wheaties box and before he was, uh, uh, um, his name, what's his name now? Caitlyn Jenner? Uh, at any rate, um, old school Bruce Jenner. And uh, behind him, there's a city kind of silhouetted behind a big red planet. Uh, there's things that kind of look like X-wing fighters with their wings closed flying overhead, so spaceships flying overhead. Um, and this Bruce Jenner dude is standing there in his uh, yellow uh, sleeveless shirt with like cool epaulets built into it. Um, super muscular, got one arm upraised with a big steel bracer around it and holding a sword in that hand. Um, his teeth are gritted, uh, are like uh, clenched determinedly. Um, he's got a red bandolier uh, across his chest that uh, I don't even know what's in those things. They're just kind of flat plastic squares. Um, they don't look like ammo. Uh, got a cool belt buckle and he's wearing like blue pants with a white stripe down the side. And then on his other arm, the one that's kind of lowered down to his left side, um, he's got a bracer on that arm too, but it's got cords running from it and to the pistol um, that's in his hand. And I calling it a pistol is doing it a disservice. It's some kind of crazy blaster. It's got a muzzle um, about the size of a coffee can. Uh, it's got two little side pieces to it that are like, I don't know, there's like little antennae or something. Um, and then it's got one of those add-on stocks on the back um, to like, I don't know, to make it steadier or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a, it's a cool looking pist pistol. It doesn't look, or blaster, it doesn't look all that practical, but it is cool. Um, on the back, we have a picture by Jeff Willingham in black and white art of uh, two women. Um, one, uh, I think it's two women. Uh, one wielding two pistols and another one uh, with sunglasses and cool fair faucet hair and almost like a superhero costume. Um, a lot of cleavage showing and, and kind of bare to the waist, but uh, not overly, uh, I don't know, it's pretty sexual, I guess, but maybe not overly so. Um, and then behind it, there's silhouettes of two look like random soldiers getting shot. Uh, the text says, Antares 9 boils with unrest and intrigue. This planet called 
Emirhos by its people, has long been ruled by the Imperial Terran Empire. Although local power is held by seven large family clans, the seven houses of Emiros. All important matters are decided by the Empire. Now, however, the people of Emiros want more freedom, and plots are being laid to rise up and throw off the Terran rule. The Revolt on Antares minigame has three different scenarios. In the basic game, the rebel player leads his or her allies in revolt against the Terran forces and the houses that remain loyal. In the second game, the Terran player tries to defeat Emiros against revolting houses in league with invading aliens, the Salaka. And in the third game, Terra is neutral while up to four players try to create the most powerful house on Emiros. I think that's the one I've played the most, by the way, is the third one. Uh, Revolt on Antares was written by Tom Moldvay. And here on the front, it says copyright 1981 by TSR Hobbies. Um, let's see. And the rest is just text, right? Um, you know, boilerplate stuff, legal stuff. Okay, let's crack this baby open. I won't read the whole thing to you. I just wanted to give you a little bit of an um, intro. Okay, inside the front cover, we have uh, houses and their units. And I think, if I recall correctly, yes, it's continued on the back cover. And these are basically the counter list, meaning uh, all the counters that you're supposed to have. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, House Orsini is purple. Uh, there should be one counter that represents Messalina, their champion. Uh, there's three power infantry and two hover hovercraft and four replacements. And then we have Mackenzie, who's light blue, um, with his champion uh, Black Dougal, um, a laser tank battalion, three power infantry, and one hovercraft. Uh, so it goes on from there. Um, and then each one has replacements or reinforcements. There's the usual, you know, introduction and game components section. Um, and the map, now they introduce the map here in the, the text and they tell you what the different symbols on the map mean. Um, there are terrain symbols and there's economic symbols. So uh, you have mountains, jungle, and desert. And then for the e economy, you have iron, minerals, coal, a seaport, grain, textile, fish, electricity, industry, gold, oil, cattle. Um, so grabbing resources is part of what the game is about. Um, there's a thing on how to win. There's a thing on setting up. By the way, I, I don't see this enough in games where they start off with how to win the game. Right? What's the point of playing the game? Um, or, or I shouldn't say the point. The point of playing the game is a social thing. But the, what do I want to do in this game? How do I win this game? Or how do I play this game? Maybe is even a better way to say it. Um, having that up front is something that rules don't do often enough. You know, Start from the top down when you're explaining rules. Uh, then we have movement rules and always a ton. You know, and a sequence of play, which is common in these older games. Um, combat, leader combat. Okay. Um, and then we get to the centerfold. So here I am with the two, you know, um, ass ends of the staples looking at me. Um, and across the entire top of the centerfold is one long visual, and it's a drawing by Errol Otis in black and white. And it is awesome. It's one of my favorite drawings. And in fact, the video that I link you to when the gentleman is flipping through the rule book for the first time, he stops on this page and goes, hey, that's a cool drawing, <laughs> you know, uh, and it is a cool drawing. So uh, some of the things we see on here, I'm going to go from right to left instead of left to right because, I, I don't know, I feel like I'm more grounded over there. So on the right-hand side, we have what look like undead legions marching, um, some of them with gas uh, masks on. Uh, behind that, there is... Um, like a starship and parachuting troopers and in front of it is this really cool looking 
figure that has some kind of robotic face mask um, with tubes coming out of it and a long neck. And then in his suit, um, he's got some kind of environmental suit on, but it seems to be translucent, as does his skin. You can see his skeleton through it. So I don't know if he's an undead leader or whatever. I forget. I know he's got a name. We'll get to that in a minute. But Then in the middle, we have some uh, tanks. Uh, one, two, three, four. They got little five wheels in their treads. Um, they've got two big blasters on either side with a kind of a bubble cockpit in the middle. And in that cockpit is some weird three bug-eyed alien with tentacles. Um, on the left, we have some troops that look kind of uh, vaguely like space elves. Uh, they've got hats with two points on them. And uh, uh, the woman in front who's leading, I don't know why I think it's a woman, but I think it is, uh, who's pointing the way and leading the charge. She has kind of like cat eyes. Um, I don't know if those are part of the suit or, or her real eyes. And then behind that, you got dudes with blasters and, and rifles. Um, and behind them, another spaceship. Uh, and then on the far left, we got a spaceship with a gal in the cockpit wearing um, Sean Connery's outfit from Zardoz, <laughs> which is to say a G-string with shoulder straps. And uh, yeah, and she's flying some some sort of spaceship. Uh, I see now that it's the same type as the one in the background on the left. So there's that. That's a pretty cool uh, scene. Good old Errol Otis. Yeah, my namesake. No relation, by the way. Um, I get that asked that all the time. All right, so then here we come to the seven houses. The seven houses are Arsini, or, or excuse me, Orsini, Mackenzie, Kinrob, Fitzgerald, Sassetti, Braganza, and Edestein. Um, you can pronounce them differently, of course. And then each house has its champion. So, um, actually, am I getting ahead of myself? Are these the champions? Yeah, I think these are the champions. All right, and each one of them has a power. So, Messalina Orsini has the power of fascination. Black Dougal McKenzie has teleportation. Barracuda Kinrabi has the power to cause hallucinations. Simon Fitzgerald can cre create ion waves that soothe the fears and raise the spirits of all troops. Okay. Um, Eraton Sassetti has long-distance telepathy. Uh, so uh, he's kind of a tactician then. I think he can sort of read minds and predict what others are going to do. Um, oh, he's better at recruiting galactic heroes. So these are, these are the house leaders, right? And then we'll get to the galactic heroes here in a minute. There's Catherine the Mad Braganza, who can summon lightning. Yee. Um, Nureb Khan Edestein has precognition, uh, so he gets a better die roll in combat, okay? And then we have, so I think, is that seven? There's kind of a theme of sevens going through this game. One, two, three, four, five, six, yes, yeah, seven. All right, and now we have artifacts. Let's see how many of these there are. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. yep, I remember that correctly. So there are seven artifacts. Um, they don't, uh, well, you think these might match the house's uh, Let's see. They, I guess they are. They are controlled by the houses. Does it say which one has which? I don't think so. I feel like, if I remember correctly, these were randomly distributed at the beginning of the game, so you don't know which artifact the other houses have. Um, you just know the one that you have. Okay, so there's the Devastator. Destroys all life not protected by force fields in a one-hex radius. So a nuke, essentially. Um, the Dimensional Plane, which adds plus two to the movement factor of all counters stacked with it. So it's a, a portal. The energy drainer drains power from attacking forces, a life sucker. Uh, the field generator can be used to either cancel a fortress force field. 
um, or to create a force shield that acts like a fortress, okay? Uh, the force cannon, an artillery counter with combat factor of eight and a movement factor of one. So it's just a big damn gun, right? A howitzer, um, a mobile howitzer. The sonic imploder, an artillery counter with a combat factor of seven and a movement of two. So uh, a slightly more mobile big gun. <laughs> Uh, and the UFO, an alien flying craft, which acts as a 510 air jet squadron. So, yeah, just a, a really good unit. All right. Um, then there's a scenario description of the Salaka invasion and the aliens. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Now, here we get to the Galactic Heroes. And I think there are seven of these as well. So let me double check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Nope. Eight, nine, ten. 10. There are 10 of these, and then there are three other leaders. So let me read the heroes. And these are guys that you can recruit, guys and gals that you can recruit to your side as one of the houses. There's Andros, android of unknown alien manufacturer. Um, he can summon and command the Phantom Regiment of other dimensional warriors. Okay. There's Corvus Andromeda. That's a great name. Intergalactic Assassin. Hmm. Has a bonus of plus one to the die roll for leader combat. Uh, so there is a, a concept in the game of unit combat and leader combat, kind of like champions calling each other out. Uh, so that's what that's talking about. All right. I think this is the guy I was describing in the Errol Otis art. Um, Dr. Death, an outlaw who creates zombie-like troops from the dead. Yep, that's the guy, Dr. Death. Um, Emerald Eridani, commander of the Emerald Company, a mercenary 7-4 laser tank formation. All right, so this is Hammer Slammers, right? That's Colonel Alois Hammer, uh, but with the serial numbers filed off. The Iron General, cyborg commander of a mercenary laser tank battalion. Oh, I got two laser tank guys, uh, so I don't know which one's supposed to be Hammer. Um, oh, here's another good name. Lyra Starfire, intergalactic adventurous and pilot. I wonder if she's the one wearing that uh, G-string in the in the Errol Otis art. Um, here's one. The Null Space Kid. Youthful intergalactic adventurer and pilot. Okay, so two air jet squadron people. Um, Skarn Three, Alien mercenary captain of a 4-5 jump troop. Uh, Subadai O'Reilly. Commander of O'Reilly's Raiders. An infantry battalion. Power infantry. Um, Tovan Palaquire. Intergalactic smuggler and weapons runner. So he gets uh, he gives you two additional replacement points. Okay, other leaders: Margon the Invincible, who is leader of the Salaka Invasion Force; uh, Mirhos, popular leader of the original primitive alien inhabitants of Imhoros. So there's Aboriginal aliens in this as well as or not aliens; they're Aboriginals, right? They're not, <laughs> they're not alien at all. They call them alien inhabitant, uh, primitive alien inhabitants in this book, which is a mistake. Um, they are the original inhabitants, so they are not alien, and their uh, primitive is maybe a word that we don't want to apply to them, uh, just for PC reasons, but, uh, okay, uh, moving on, Ward Serpentine, console for Imperial Terra on Imheros, so here's your, um, representation from the Imperium, okay, um, so, as I said, it was designed by Tom Mulvey, development, uh, Kevin Hendricks, editing, I don't need to read that, art, Jeff D., David LaForce, Errol Otis, Jim Rosloff, and Bill Willingham, so quite a few artists worked on it, um, some of them on the counters, clearly, um, let's see, do I recognize any of the names in the playtesting, I do not, okay, all right, so that's the book, um, and that's the bulk of what I, you know, wouldn't give you a preview on, I'm going to take a quick look at the map, fold this sucker out. Um, it's in full color. It's one of the few maps from these old games that is in full color. 
um, you know, starting in the 80s is when they really started making better uh, versions of these micro games. So it's a hex map. Um, it looks like a risk kind of setup because you've got um, areas of hexes colored in in you know bold colors, uh, light green, dark green, red, yellow, purple, brown, and uh, those represent the house, the areas the houses control. Um, and then there, let's see, there's a lot of ocean. Um, you got numbering down the left and right, just so you know kind of what row you're on there. Um, as mentioned before, there's kind of econo economy symbols or economic symbols in some of the hexes and terrain symbols. There's also kind of a capital city for each house that has their logo, and there's a spaceport where the Terran uh, the Terrans are set up. And as I recall, the spaceport is a big part of the game. Like, so capturing the spaceport is worth more victory points. Um, the counters, uh, full color counters, well, not really. Um, single colors with bl uh, black and white drawings, but there's lots of different colors. So, you know, each, each house has different colors. Nice little drawings. Um, I remember particularly liking the one that shows the gray power infantry, which is the aliens and their little tanks. Um, the troopers look really cool, the power, power uh, troops. Um, the heroes look pretty cool, Corvus and Andros I'm looking at here, and uh, they're in a plastic bag, that's why you hear wrestling. Okay, so pretty cool counters. Um, overall, a neat little game. I remember the play of it not being all that amazing, but the flavor of this thing is great, and it would, you know, it's a ready-made little world to play in, isn't it? Um, if you were playing Traveler, this would be a great thing to do uh, do it with, uh, but I, I believe it was... Um, did I? Uh, oh yeah, I was on the last podcast. Frostsoft mentioned Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells. That's a great pick because of some of these crazy alien artifacts and some of the crazy powers. You know, I don't really see Traveler doing um, Doctor Death <laughs> and raising an undead troops. You could do it with Traveler, but maybe it wouldn't be as uh, I don't know. Wouldn't be as seemly. It wouldn't be as in keeping with the rules. You know, Traveler I think of as a little bit more hard sci-fi. I think looking at the game begs the question. What do you do with it at the table? Where do players come into it? There's a couple different ways they could come into it, but I would probably put them in the roles of the um, galactic heroes. So being recruited by the, I'd leave the houses as these mysterious and um, possibly callous um, political factions, some that seem heroic and some that seem devious and maybe then play some counter to type um, that the heroic ones are actually the nasty ones and the, you know, um, the Terrans. Uh, it's very Dune-like, right? These houses and the Im Imperial office. So I would play all that up as the GM. And then um, the plight of the Aboriginals I think is interesting too. I don't think I'd mess much with the alien invaders unless it's just kind of a frontier threat. Um, because it seems like there's a lot of moving parts in the game already. And then um, I'd let the players create cool heroes of high levels that are going to be recruited by these houses and uh, try to play things on a bigger scale, right? So uh, uh, pump in some rules. I don't remember, I don't think Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells has rules for mass combat. Uh, maybe they do. If they don't, I'd use the map and the counters maybe even um, to do some battles, but come up with some rules. I recently linked, uh, if you're following me on uh, Inno Reader or Ino Reader, I'm not sure how to say that ever, I linked a an article about uh, a mass combat system that somebody had tried at their table and found really fun, and it just had to do with, um, it, it was really super simple, but it looked like a ton of fun. It was kind of basic troops with these titanic uh, creatures as well, so you had one level of combat that was troop combat, and then one level of combat that was titans battling each other. 
and then um, there was some interaction, but not a lot. Um, mostly, uh, if a unit tackled a Titan, it was just to slow it down because it was going to lose every turn um, and just kind of slowly, you know, it was a, um, attrition, a battle of attrition. So that could be really cool just to kind of bring in those rules very quickly and consider the heroes um, kind of like these Titanic figures. So that's one way of doing it. Another way I might do it is to just uh, let, let all of those be NPCs and political factions and let the players uh, put the players somewhere down in the middle of this world with a mission. Uh, probably if I were going to do it that way, I would have them be part of the Terran force that's trying to keep peace on the planet and give them some mission to um, undermine or spy on a rogue house. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Uh, that way they could play like whoever they wanted to play. Um, they would just have a tie to the Terran Empire. So yeah, um, I, I don't know. Give me your thoughts, uh, especially you, Frostsoft. You're the one that wanted to talk about this. It's a cool old game. It's got tons of flavors. It's got good art. Um, it's got ready-made maps and counters and characters, you know, NPCs. It's got artifacts you could work with. I would probably punch up the artifacts a little and make them a little more interesting. There seems to be quite a bit of repetition, um, you know, like having two heroes that are tank battalion commanders and two heroes that are um, air jet uh, people and, and uh you know, having two artifacts that are just big moving guns. So I would get rid of some of that repetition, differentiate them a little more. Um, but for the most part, I'd try to do them as written uh, and just put, apply game stats to them, you know. Um, but I'd love to hear what you'd do with this game if you have thoughts on this or if you have any remembrances of playing it. Like I said, I think we mostly played uh, that third scenario. I don't remember playing... Uh, much with the aboriginals except as a force that you could recruit um, I don't remember much about the Terrans other than just trying to keep this uh, grab the spaceport and I don't think ever we ever played the alien invasion scenario um, but you know we just kind of played houses and doing a big land grab it was okay maybe we played it wrong I'd, I'd like to play it again now as an adult and uh, maybe pick one of the other scenarios and see how it plays out but the reviews at the time also kind of felt like it was you know, just fine as a game, N uh, nothing broken about it, but perhaps not the best game or the most exciting game, uh, to play from the actual rules perspective, but a super cool game from a flavor perspective. And that's all you really need if you're going to steal from it to, uh, make it into an RPG. So there you go. Revolt on Antares. I'm Ray Otis signing off. This has been another episode of Plundergrounds. The theme music is by Logan Howard of the Swordbreaker Zine and Podcast. You can find links to all of my projects and games at www.rayotus.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for Antarian Rust Monsters.